This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Today we're venturing back into the 1100s to trace the history of the Knights Templar. This was an order of warriors founded to protect pilgrims visiting the Holy Land. Over time, the knights acquired land, power, and influence across Europe. Their order was eventually dissolved, but clues about their existence can still be found in various place names and in legends about their exploits that still survive to this day. Joining us to talk about the Templars and to help separate fact from fiction is Dr. Stephen Brindle, Senior Properties Historian with English Heritage. So, Stephen, who were the Order of the Knights Templar? And how did they originate? The Knights Templar were one of three orders of knights who were based in the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem in the 12th and 13th centuries. And they originated in 1119 in the efforts of a French knight, Hugh de Payen, to found an order of monk knights who would protect pilgrims. Right. And why was it necessary to protect pilgrims? Well, towards the end of the 11th century, the First Crusade got to Palestine and conquered Jerusalem in circumstances of appalling savagery, and they set up a kingdom, the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem, which covered the whole area we now think of as Israel and stretched into and were allied states in Lebanon and what's now Syria. Mm -hmm. But this was still a pretty wild area. There were large areas of the countryside which weren't really under the Latin King of Jerusalem's control. And when Christian pilgrims began to arrive in the Holy Land, they often found themselves attacked and robbed by groups of Muslims or just by bandits, by people out to steal their money. And so pilgrimage to Jerusalem, despite the success of the First Crusade, was a very perilous venture. And the Knights Templar, who were the first of the crusading orders, were set up expressly to protect pilgrims once they'd arrived in the Holy Land. That was their initial purpose. But they swiftly developed others. Yes, we'll talk about those as well. The Knights were based exactly where in the Holy Land? Well, when Hugh de Payen set up the order in 1119, he swiftly got support from Baldwin II, the King of Jerusalem, who gave him what's now called the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which was part of the site of the Temple, of Solomon's Temple from the Bible, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so they initially called themselves the Knights of the Order of the Temple of Solomon, or Knights Templar for short. And they were based there, but they had several other castles, most of which were sited on the roads to protect travellers, to protect pilgrims throughout what's now Israel and stretching further up the coast, because from their initial role in protecting pilgrims, they developed into a full military fighting order, that is, an order of knights who had taken vows of celibacy. So they were, in effect, a form of army, and they formed an important part of the army of the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem. That's quite a step, isn't it, really, to go from a knight who takes an order of celibacy to become a, a warrior knight. It's, it's hard to wrap your head around, really. You can't imagine our modern-day clerics carrying weapons, can we? Uh, indeed not. Um, now, the knights themselves did not take holy orders 
but they did take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience like a monk. So although the Templars have been called warrior monks, they weren't in fact monks. Now, the order consisted of knights who had to be people who already of knightly rank because the, um, that is, had been knighted by a monarch because the knights couldn't themselves confer knighthood. And there were sergeants who were a much larger number who did what you might call all the heavy lifting work of organizing what became a very large international organization with around 15,000 members. And there were considerable numbers of clergy attached to them, that is ordained clergymen who held religious services for them. So the Templars, all in all, but they're very high, probably numbered about 15,000 people, spread in castles and garrisons in the east and across estates which stretched across the whole of Western Europe. So they became a vast international order, and this had to do with the prestige they developed through supporting the Crusades as, as a Christian purpose, have a contentious, it may seem now, and protecting pilgrims to the Holy Land. So effectively, they were kind of a, a defensive or attacking force to protect pilgrims visiting the Holy Land, but also to protect Holy Land sites. Yes, exactly. They went from being a force who were there primarily to protect pilgrims to being an offensive military force who saw their role as being part of the permanent defences of the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem. And as such, they built numerous castles. Most of the castles in what was then the Kingdom of Jerusalem, what is now Israel, have disappeared. There are considerable remains of one at a place called Athlet in Israel, which they call Chastel Pelerin. And they had other major castles, in fact, the most impressive pieces of Templar architecture that survive in the east to this day are in what's now Syria, so probably not very accessible, really. And the most impressive of all, at a place on the coast, which was then called Tartus or Tortosa on the, the Syrian coast. So they had great castles and they formed an army essentially of heavy mounted knights of heavy cavalry, and they took part in many of the major battles which took place as Saladin, the Arab ruler who ruled Egypt and was trying to reconquer the Christian kingdom, gradually increased his pressure on the Latin kingdom. And the Templars formed a large part of the Christian army, which was destroyed in the fatal battle of Hattin in 1187, which Saladin won. And after the Battle of Hattin, really, things were never going the same for the Crusaders in the East. I see. So whilst they were set up as a defensive and protective force, they then became this offensive force. They then lost this conflict and then they kind of started to lose their identity in that sense. Well, the Battle of Hattin was a turning point for the Crusading Kingdom. Thereafter, they lost really the whole of their territory. And the Latin Kingdom in the East was restored by the Third Crusade, which was led by Richard I, Richard the Lionheart of England, and King Philip Augustus of France, um, who around about the years 1190 to 91 reconquered a part of the coast of the Latin Kingdom, of what's now Israel, but they didn't regain Jerusalem. They set up a revived Latin kingdom with its capital at Acre on the coast, and that became the headquarters of Knights Templar and of the Knights Hospitaller, the Knights of St. John of the Hospital, who were the other major crusading order. And the Templars had other major castles further north up the coast in areas which, at this stage, 
had not been reconquered by Islamic forces and which remained part of the county of Tripoli. So after the disaster of Hattin, the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem was revived after the Third Crusade and they recovered Jerusalem rather briefly by negotiation by the, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. And they got Jerusalem back for about 10 years in the 1230s. But the Latin Kingdom was never really the same again. But after Hattin, the military orders became more, not less important in its defence, because the kingdom had lost its central area of the area of land which really had supported villages and garrisons. And so the military orders in the 13th century became more important, not less, to the defence of the Holy Land and to the protection of pilgrims. And it was in this age that the Templars and the Hospitallers rebuilt their castles, the Hospitallers built the famous Crat de Chevalier, and the Templars' equivalents, there was a great castle at Tortosa in Syria, and there were others, Chastel Pellerin on the coast at Athlet, which still sort of stands. And they built another castle they called Chastel Blanc or White Castle, which is a place called Burj Safita in Syria. And so there are remarkable fortifications built by the Templars in this later period in the 13th century. But this was all really living on borrowed time. The reason the Templars and the Hospitallers became so important was that they were supported by income from the great estates which they were given in the 12th century in the West, but in particular in Spain and France and England, which we'll come to in a bit. And so with the income from these estates, they were able to support their garrisons in the 13th century, in this later period of the Crusader Kingdom's history. And so their role went from having a big standing army to running a long series of garrisons to help defend the residual Christian kingdoms. And that came to an end with the collapse of Latin Kingdom and the fall of Acre in 1291. Right. Just going back to this um, Battle of Hatim, did they lose a lot of men? Because you, you mentioned uh, towards the start that there was about 15,000 people in this order. So would they have lost a lot of men in well, that battle? Of the 15,000, only, only a few thousand would actually have been knights. The Templars and the whole Christian army lost enormous numbers. Uh, I think well over half of the force were killed in the battle, and the, really the whole of the rest of the army was taken prisoner by Saladin. So yes, the Templars, who were the most formidable element in the Christian army, would have been singled out for retribution by their opponents, and I believe that most of the Templars involved in the Battle of Hattin died there, yes. So this was a very heavy blow, but they were a very large organisation by that stage, a very large order, with many garrisons spread through the Holy Land, so it was by no means the end of them, although they did suffer very heavily on that day. Right, I see. But they were a real fighting order, there is no doubt that they were among the most formidable fighting forces in the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem throughout its history. So broadly speaking, after that battle, have they suffered losses, but then they've managed to sort of re regain and establish some territory? Yes, in the history of in the 13th century history of the Latin Kingdom, the history is less one of pitched battles and more one of the Christian principalities, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the County of Tripoli and the Principality of Antioch holding on as garrisons coming periodically under siege, and eventually in the 1190s, in the final collapse of the Latin Kingdom, being picked off one by one. So the crucial date is as 1291, when the Acre 
which was the capital of the Latin kingdom after Hattin, when Acre fell. And in the 1290s, the remaining Christian garrisons, which include the hospitallers at Crac de Chevalier and the Knights Templar at Tortosa, fell. And the Knights withdrew to Cyprus, where they already maintained a fleet and where they already had headquarters and castles. So the Knights withdrew their forces there. And their grand commander, Jacques de Molay, took part in several actions, sort of rearguard actions on the coast and attempts to hold on to possessions on the coast. But they've been driven out into Cyprus and they were regrouping and they were trying to muster forces and support for a reinvasion when the Templars were finally suppressed. So it's not quite true to say they'd lost their role, but they had lost all of their possessions actually in the Holy Land, and the numbers of pilgrims had collapsed completely as a result of the loss of the Latin Kingdom. Quite a dramatic rise and fall then over how many years exactly? A couple of centuries? Well, the uh, the Crusading Kingdoms lasted just about two centuries, from the First Crusade, 1089-1095, to the fall of Acre in 1291. And the last castles would have fallen in the mid-1290s, I think. So just about two centuries, yes. And the Templars lasted almost all that time. But one of the reasons they were so important was that they attracted donations of land and property throughout Western Europe, and in particular in England. And so they gained great estates, and they also developed an important financial infrastructure. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. There's something to do with money lending, isn't there? Yes. Well, the point was that money lending, lending, lending money at interest, was deemed to be sinful, is contrary to canon law. And so no Christian could do it. And that's partly why Jewish moneylenders effectively monopolised what we would call banking in the Middle Ages, because it was contrary to canon law. At least they monopolised up until about the 13th century, when Christians began to do it anyway. Now, the Knights Templar found a way of getting round this. And this was really arose from the need of pilgrims who could be very rich people, and often were very rich people, who wanted to go and pray at the Holy Sepulchre. And they knew they'd need money to get there. But taking large quantities of gold coin with them was obviously a rash thing to do. So one of the services the Templars began to develop was to say, well, if you deposit money or if you give property to us, we will make credit available to you when you are in the Holy Land. Thus, in effect, acting as a kind of bank, a kind of travel bank, though without charging interest on money. But the Templars could, of course, make a discount, shall we say, on the money that they advanced to the pilgrim once they'd reached Acre or Jerusalem. And they, would t- they could take their cut, and indeed they did, and a very large cut it was too. And so they developed a form of banking without money, without interest, and this enabled them, and they began to provide this to other people in other circumstances. And they became very rich by doing so. So not only did they have estates throughout much of Western Europe, and in England, but they had this system for effectively money transfers on behalf of the rich and great, from which they made very substantial profits. Did this money lending idea last for as long as the Crusades did, or was it a shorter period? 
it lasted up to the end of the Knights Templar, which I suppose we'll come to in a bit. I suppose the next question that people might be wanting answered is, how did they get to England and establish themselves through place names and uh, and legend and all that sort of thing? You mentioned earlier that they bestowed lands across Europe. So I suppose this was how they got their foot in the door. Yes. Well, the centre, the heartland of the crusading movement in Western Europe was always France. That's where the First Crusade began. That's where the Latin King of Jerusalem's rulers came from. Um, They were born to the House of Flanders, actually, in effect. That's where the majority of all crusading knights always came from. And Richard I, who was the most famous individual crusader, would probably have thought of himself as French as as much as English. And so France was always heartland of efforts to send the First Crusade and then the subsequent Crusades and to support the Latin kingdoms in the East. And this is a crucial fact for understanding the end of the Templars, that France was of such paramount importance here. Henry II of England was very keenly aware of this. And in many ways, he was actually a more powerful figure at the time than the contemporary King of France. He was a vassal to the King of France in Normandy and in Anjou and in Aquitaine. And supporting the Crusades was a matter of great prestige. Now, King Louis VII of France actually went on the Second Crusade, went to the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem, which conferred on him great prestige in the eyes of his people and of the church, which Henry II never did. He probably made vows to, most medieval monarchs did, but he never got to go. His son, Richard I, of course, eventually did. So Henry would have been acutely aware of this. So when Hugh de Payen, the founder of the Templars, arrived in England, he'd been given a warm welcome by King Henry I, and King Henry II repeated his support for the Templars because this was a way in which he could support the crusading movement without having to go himself. And so he gave them numerous manors. He gave them property in the city of London where they founded headquarters somewhere in the the area called, which was later called Baynard's Castle. And then later in his reign, he gave them a site just further outside the city walls, but a larger site, which then became known as the Temple. And they built their main English HQ there. And so King Henry gave them their first major estates in England, and he encouraged members of the aristocracy to follow suit. Temple, isn't that a stop on the district line in London? Is that right? District and circle, sir. Yes, indeed it is. King Henry gave them a large enclave. The Knights Templar had a big HQ just north of the city of Paris, which became known as the Temple, and they built something similar outside London. There was an initial site at Baynard's Castle in the Walls, wasn't really big enough, and then he gave them a larger site outside the walls, and they would have had quite a big several acres there, barns and stables and storehouses, and there'd have been accommodation for a number of knights and for guests place where they could entertain great donors but most importantly they built a church and for the Templars their architectural signature so to speak was that they built round churches which were in imitation not in imitation of Solomon's temple as you might suppose from their name but of the holy sepulchre which was the church where Christ himself was buried the church that had been built over the site of Christ's tomb 
And so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, circular, and the Templars built circular churches. That is, they had a circular, a central circular area surrounded by a lower circular aisle. And two major ones survive in good order. In this country, they are the Temple Church in London and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Cambridge. But we know that there were others. And the London one is actually near the Temple sort of tube stop. Yes, it is. Well, the Knight Templar's estate, after the order was suppressed, which we will come to in a bit, was their property was mostly given to the other crusading order, the Knights Hospitallers. And in that case, it became occupied by clerics who were engaged in the law. And so the temple acquired its association with the practice of the law in the 14th and 15th centuries. And so in modern times, the temple became two of the modern inns of court, the inner temple and the middle temple. And so the knights were replaced by clergymen who studied canon law, and they in turn were replaced by secular lawyers living in those collegiate organisations which we call the inner temple and the middle temple because they live on the site. And so there is a continuity of occupation there from the Knights Templar in the 12th century all the way to the lawyers there in chambers in our own age. And the original church, which is the only one of the Templar buildings to survive, is still used by the, the middle temple and the inner temple as their chapel, as their corporate place of worship. So hence the name. And indeed, the Templars tended to add the name Temple to their properties in England and throughout elsewhere in Europe. And so places with Temple in their name, like Temple Cloud or Temple Gitting or Cressing Temple throughout England or Temple Saw, are generally speaking places which belong to the Knights Templar and their ownership is thus commemorated in the place name. Yes, we'll get on to those in just a sec. I did have a quick question, though, before we do, which relates to this development of the Knights Templar. They've had a meteoric rise, despite a couple of blips and losing battles and things. They've, they've really managed to get their clutches into the state and get control of land and influence through the support of the king. And it's quite a rise, isn't it? Yes, yes, a, a meteoric rise. What you have to remember here is that in the Middle Ages, the church effectively formed a quite a separate corporation, separate from the state, from the crown, and that separation was a matter of very considerable tension periodically throughout the Middle Ages, just how independent was the church and which owed allegiance to the Pope. But there were also monastic orders and the crusading orders which formed monastic orders were religious organisations, the crusading orders were quasi-religious. They were also international organisations with an international structure that were kind of semi-independent of the power of national states, of the crown. And that really was part of the problem. And that was part of why the Templars eventually were destroyed by the most powerful and jealous of all European monarchs at the time that the idea of having this international organ, very powerful international organisation, which claimed immunity from half your laws and immunity from taxation conferred on it by the church, and you never quite knew what they were up to. Well, initially in the 12th century, kings wanted to be seen to support the crusading cause. But as the crusading cause faded, 
So the more negative aspects of having these very large, very powerful organizations based within your country might have become apparent to monarchs, as happened in this case. Yes, because they've gone from just the humble act of protecting pilgrims, shall we say, to lending money, owning land, moving across territories, across Europe, and influencing kings and entertaining as having parties and all the rest of it. And having their own foreign policy and everything. Yes, quite so. And maintaining heat and waging war on on Islamic people in the Middle East. Quite all of that, yes. Yes, waging war abroad and making law wherever they've set up at home in England. It's remarkable. Yes, they were a most remarkable organisation. In England, their estates were organised and the larger ones were called commanderies and the smaller ones called preceptories. And at a commandery, you might find a number of knights there with a rather num- large number of sergeants running the place, welcoming visitors and generally trying to, to drum up further donations, I think, especially by entertaining visitors, by entertaining travellers and providing banking services for them, in effect. We have in English heritage, we, we have a number of former temple properties. The most prominent one is called Temple Church in Bristol, where the clue's in the name, though there's not very much from them their time to be seen. We know that originally they did build a circular church, much like the one in London there, because its foundations have been excavated. But after the Templars were suppressed, the site really became a conventional parish church, and it was rebuilt first the original Templar chancel was rebuilt, and then the round nave was demolished and replaced with what amounts to a conventional perpendicular parish church. The site of the original foundations is laid out in the turf there, is laid out in pebbles, so you can see where it was. So the Templar memory is preserved in the in the footings which are laid out and, and in the name. And English Heritage are spending a great deal of money on it at the moment, on essential masonry repairs. So that's Temple Church in Bristol. It's also worth saying that um, Temple Church in Bristol, in its current form as we see it, is, is, a, is a bombed out church, which yes. was damaged during World War II with a, with a slightly sloping tower, I believe. You're absolutely right to remind me. Yes, Temple Church is effectively a large, grand, conventional, perpendicular parish church till it was bombed in 1941. So now it's a rather evocative ruin in English heritage's care. And it does have a tower which leans slightly, but I believe that's to do with ground conditions, not to do with the bombing. Yes, absolutely. But it's a nice place to go and uh, sit. And there, I think there are benches and, and that sort of thing to, you can sort of take in. It certainly is. But um, can you tell us exactly what they're doing there on site? The current 14th century shell is in rather, well, was in rather poor condition. So we set aside £1.3 million, I think, for masonry repairs there, which are in progress. Yeah. Now, of other Templar properties, we have a place called Denny Abbey in Cambridgeshire, which was a Benedictine priory and then rather briefly became a sort of Templar retirement home for old and infirm knights. And that doesn't seem to have had a round church. There's, uh, there are a couple of doorways there, which we think the Knights Templar might have built, because after the Order were destroyed, that became a Franciscan nunnery. And probably the most evocative Templar building that we own is called Temple Manor, and that's near Gillingham in Kent, uh, Rochester in Kent, and is now in the middle of an industrial estate. I'm rather sorry to say, but it's still an evocative thing. King Henry II gave the Templars the Manor of Strood 
on the Medway in 1159, and in the 13th century, they built a new manor house there with this very fine first-floor hall, a very finely fitted interior in order to entertain grand guests because it would have been on the way from London to the Channel ports at Dover. And so Temple Manor is the most evocative building built by the Templars, which English heritage retains, and probably the most evocative in England after the two churches in London and Cambridge. And the other rather mysterious thing we have is the foundations, the footings of a round church, which on the Western Heights in Dover, the Western Heights is the headland on the other side of the town from Dover Castle. And in the 19th century, while building works were going on there, they found the foundations of what seemed to be a circular church. So it's believed that this is a small Templar church and there would have been a small Templar preceptory there at Dover, which, of course, was one of the principal ports of entry to England. So we do have a number of Templar sites in our care. And although Temple Church in Bristol is probably the most prominent, actually the present building rather postdates them. Of course. Which is the best surviving Knights Templar church or building related to the order, which looks like how it would have done in its day? In this country, without doubt, the two round churches in London, all of that is very much restored in the 19th century, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Cambridge. The best preserved anywhere is probably the Church of the Holy Cross or the True Cross at Segovia in Spain, the Iglesia de la Veracruz, which is a Templar church which is almost perfectly preserved. All right, let's get on to the end of the Knights Templar then. We know they're being suppressed at some point, but when do they suffer their end and sort of disband? The end came very suddenly um, and as a result of high politics in the Kingdom of France. And there was a fairly clearly identifiable villain here, which is King Philip IV of France, a monarch with very authoritarian tendencies. And his authoritarian tendencies led him into conflict, first trying to assert the authority of the French crown over King Edward I of England, who was his vassal as the Duke of Aquitaine, and his authority over the people in the prosperous wool towns of Flanders. And King Philip's policies prompted um, great popular uprisings there. And so Philip got himself into wars with Edward I, the Duke of Aquitaine, and in Flanders, and these were very expensive. King Philip also had views about the position of the crown in relation to the church. He thought that the crown should have a lot more authority over the church and church affairs. He thought that as king of France, he was the senior monarch in Christendom, he thought of himself, and he thought that as the Lord's anointed, he had a quasi-religious status. And he proposed to the crusading orders that as the Latin kingdom had been lost, what they ought to do would be to place themselves under him as leader of the preeminent crusading nation. And he, as a warrior king, would take the resources of the crusading orders and lead them in a new crusade, which is probably really a clever royal ploy to use crusade as an excuse for taxation and taking other people's resources, which very often happened. So the crusading orders, which of course had resources well beyond France, although France was of supreme importance to them, resisted this. But King Philip managed to get a compliant Frenchman elected as Pope Clement V, and this is a very important element in what came next. 
and in the papal schism which followed it. King Philip was heavily in debt to Jewish moneylenders and to the Knights Templar, and he needed to he had heavy debts and he needed to raise yet more money, and he had these views about the King of France and his authority and role. And so for him, the way forward was to find an excuse for seizing the Knights Templar's assets, which would both cancel their debt to him and put him in possession of their very large resources and estates. And so with the support of Pope Clement V, King Philip eventually fabricated charges which were laid at the Templars' doors that they were guilty of heresy, that they were guilty of sodomy, that their initiation ceremonies for new knights were essentially heretical, that they claimed all sorts of rights which only the church should have. And the Templars were subjected to, well, were ambushed in 1307 by the king in alliance with Pope Clement V and Knights Templars all over France were arrested. And one of the reasons for timing was that their grandmaster, Jacques de Molay, was then in France for a series of conferences about how they were going to recover from the loss of Acre and the loss of all the Christian possessions on the coast of Palestine. So there's no proof of this, whatever, proof that there were that they were devil worshippers or sodomites or heretics or whatever, are purely trumped up. These are pure allegations by King Philip, and they were entirely fabricated. They were the 13th century equivalent of 14th century equivalent of, of Stalinist show trials, frankly, and it was one of the most obnoxious abuses of royal power in all medieval history. And there was a strong sense about this that Philip was trying to claim some of the functions of the church in presenting himself as a judge of heresy and a guarantor of the purity of the kingdom. So a lot of the Templars were tortured and confessed their sins. It was suggested that they would be released, they'd be allowed to go free if they confessed and if they agreed to the suppression of their order and if they agreed to surrender their possessions. And this unrolled over several years. And a lot of the Templars then recanted. And in 1310, 54 Knights Templar were burnt at the stake in France for heresy because they'd recanted their confessions, which were certainly false and which were extracted under duress by agents of King Philip IV and by the Pope. And Jacques de Molay, the Grand Master of the Order, who was then quite an elderly man, around 70, had also confessed under torture and he too recanted, and King Philip was furious and said if he's recanted, that means he's a heretic, so he must burn, although I think it was actually the cardinals rather than King Philip who were probably primarily directly to blame, but King Philip and his pet cardinals between them had Jacques de Molay and the last of the Templar High Command burnt at the stake on the 11th of March 1314. And as the flames rose around the elderly Grand Master de Molay, he is said to have said something like, God knows who is innocent here and who is guilty. And so the legend of the Templar curse was born, as well it might be, because they were, whatever you think about the Templars or what they've become or the lot of their original role, they were guilty of the most stupendous injustice. Yes. 
but well in some respects they'd almost um, exceeded their original remit and they'd uh, bitten off more than they can chew and then it came back to bite them I suppose you could say it certainly did. You could say it has been claimed that they, they'd lost their original role with the fall of Acre and with the loss of the Latin Kingdom. Now, they did still have large bases in Cyprus and the fleet. And if there was ever going to be a Christian reconquest uh, of the Holy Land, which in fact never was, the crusading orders would have been essential to it. But King Philip obviously decided that his needs and the authority and, and, and prestige of the French crown came first and that the Templars didn't so much stand in his way as it was inconvenient that he owed them enormous debts and he wanted to get his hands on their wealth. And so he destroyed them. And when they recanted their false confessions, he had them burnt at the stake, which tells you quite a lot about what sort of man Philip IV of France was. Yes. The sort of 13th century Stalin or Hitler. Terrible man. Regarding English property then, who acquired the empty Knights Templar property in England as a result of these purges in France? Most other European monarchs, I don't think any of them really believed any of this, but the French king had enormous prestige and power. And in England, Edward II, to his credit, resisted moving against them and was, was only threatened by the Pope with excommunication if he didn't go along with this because once the Pope had nailed his colours to this mask, the Templars were heretics and so had to go through the policy. So what generally happened in England and in some other countries was that the Templars were closed down peacefully, the members were allowed to retire and their property was transferred to the Knights Hospitaller or to other branches of the church. One country was particularly sympathetic and that was Portugal because the Templars had played an important part in the Portuguese reconquest. And so King Denis of Portugal allowed the Templars to be closed down and then immediately refounded with the same castles and the same personnel as something called the Order of Christ. So they had a direct successful organisation there in Portugal with the, in the great castle of Tomar, which has another round church, became the headquarters of the Order of Christ, which was really the sort of continuity Templars in Portugal. But otherwise, they were destroyed between 1307 and 1314. But King Philip died in a hunting accident a few months later, and Pope Clement died a few months later. And King Philip's four sons, who all succeeded to the throne in turn, all died without male heirs by 1327. So a lot of people said the Templar's curse has come true. I was going to say, yeah, is that the curse at work, potentially? Yes. Well, it would have served them right, frankly. <laughs> We talked about how they have left a legacy in na place names like Temple Cloud in Somerset, Temple Church in Bristol, Bristol Temple Meads, the, the train station, for example, Temple on the District and uh, Circle Line in London, etc., etc. But there's a legend associated with the Knights Templar as well. There's a few of them. Quickly, what, what are those? Yes, yes, partly because of the violent circumstances of their suppression. Legends have, um, have repeatedly sprung up that the Templars survived in secret, that there were secret organisations which were successors to them, that there was something called the Priory of the Order of Zion. And in our own age, popular writers, writers called Henry Late Lincoln and Michael Bajant wrote a book called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail in 1982. And they basically hypothesised that Christ and Mary Magdalene had a child and the blood that Christ's bloodline was the real Holy Grail 
and that the Priory of Zion and the Templars were guardians of the Holy Grail, meaning the bloodline of Christ. And ideas of this sort of conspiracy theory kind pop up in things like Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code. So the idea that the Templars continued in secret or that they had successors in this mythic organization called the Priory of Zion or in the Masons have proved hardy indeed and they pop up in modern literature and, and in fiction. But most historians would say they have no real substance. And why do you think these things persist, even though the Templars were brutally suppressed or, or in some places peacefully? Well, because people love a mystery and lots of people love prefer a conspiracy theory over humdrum truth. And the tragic circumstances, the Templars' dramatic history and the tragic and awful circumstances of the end lend themselves to interpretations like this, I suppose. And the fact of you know their name and the fact that they were guardians of the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem, you can quite see why historical romance would be woven around such a subject. But for most historians, the Templars were ended by act of King Philip IV of France between 1307 and 1314. And the myths are, are themselves a historical phenomenon. But the historical facts are also very, very strong. And I think um, the fact that they had such an amazing rise to power from fairly humble beginnings and then spread it is also just a, an incredible story. It is an extraordinary story, Charles, yes. I'm a contentious one in many ways. The whole subject of crusading is contentious now. To, and to any Muslim or Jewish person, highly contentious. And so the Templars really have to be regarded in, um, well, as a historical, as a phenomenon of the 12th and 13th centuries of an age and a culture which thought that crusading was, was one of their highest ideals. It's something we'd really think now. But yes, at the time, they were among the highest exemplars and expressions of the crusading idea which is why they became so powerful. But when the Crusader kingdom collapsed and disappeared, they became vulnerable and their wealth and their power made them vulnerable and with tragic consequences. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be looking back at some festive feasts from the past and exploring the history of Christmas entertaining at English Heritage's houses. One year, one of the staff members, a chap called David Temple, he actually dressed as Father Christmas, actually abseiled down from a skylight in the roof <laughs> of the staircase hall, which must have been quite dangerous. Thanks for listening. See you next time.